in this period of time here in Agama, during the satsang, I'm giving a series of lectures on the Tibetan yoga, more precisely the yoga of the disciple, the principles empowering the spiritual practice of the seekers, as seen by the Tibetan yoga. It is, I'm doing this both because it is an excellent guide for people seeking spirituality. I'm doing this because the Tibetans have been some of the very few that have gathered such information together, a compendium of upsides and downsides of the issues in spiritual life, and also because the Tibetans have been famed throughout the world of yoga for having a very uncompromising attitude, having a very strict attitude, being somewhere on the borderline between the Indian Himalayan yogis and the Chinese martial artists. They have developed both the desire to make things systematic, the 10 errors and so on, like putting them in categories very clearly, but and at the same time they have an uncompromising attitude, they have a very sarcastic sense of humor wherever necessary, that means they like to expose the hypocrisy, the lies, the, all the falsities in spiritual life, and uh, very often, as I say, they manifest a merciless sense of humor, at the same time showing very strictly what is what. I started with uh, 10 grievous failures. The, I commented until now the very first paragraph. There are 28 such paragraphs. Perhaps in time we'll get to go through all of them, although some of them are highly metaphysical. I'm starting with those which are really practical, the, those which are really pointing at, at the do's and don'ts of spiritual quest. And that's why I am selecting for you in a certain order the different chapters which are really sharp in their observation about what needs to be done or avoided in the spiritual life. That's why I'm moving for tonight at the second of the paragraphs that we discuss about here. It is in order the paragraph number 10, so I've skipped nine others, which again, perhaps later I'm going to get back to some of them, depending also on the response and on the time which we have with those. The 10th paragraph is called the 10 errors. It simply speaks about what is an error in spiritual life as seen from the standpoint of Tibetan yoga. The first of them, weakness of faith combined with strength of intellect are apt to lead to the error of talkativeness. People who in spirituality talk too much and do too little. Talkativeness, according to the Tibetan yogis, is too much intellect allied with too little faith. 
then the intellect takes over, but the faith, which is exactly the thing which motivates us and which moves us, is not there. This is very, very important because you see that in many, many spiritualities there are lots of words. There is lots of preaching. There is lots of theology. There are lots of dogmas. There are lots of commentaries. There are lots of commentaries upon the commentaries. There is a lot of exegetics and hermeneutics and all sorts of other <coughs> branches. There is a whole science of divinity in which people talk about what ought to be done or what other people have done. For example, Milarepa, until the, the story of his life had been jotted down by some of his disciples, Milarepa never wrote anything, he never made any commentary. It is like Ramakrishna, who had the same practical spirit. He said, what is the use of talking about the fruits in the garden? It is much more important to boldly step in the garden and pick up the fruits and taste them and eat them. That's what matters in reality. That is why in spirituality there needs to be, beyond a certain point, an economy of words. Yes, it is necessary to teach the spiritual techniques. It is necessary to teach the metaphysics so people know what they do and why they do what they do. But beyond a certain level, to come back on the same stories and take them again, and to take them again, and to take them again, those are just words. Many spiritualists would say, practice, 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 practice. A dictum which Swami Shivananda loved very much, and which recently I found out that actually he did not invent it, he actually borrowed it from no, nobody else than Friedrich Engels, one of the fathers of Marxism and dialectic materialism, was a gram of practice is worth tons of theory. Therefore, it is much more important to do those grams of practice than talking, talking, talking. Very often when people do not find the faith, they talk about it. They talk about how it would be nice to heal your diseases by doing the Vamana Dauti and by doing the morning Kriyas and by doing the Simhasana and the Sarvangasana and all that. But in the moment when something is happening and they are about to have to act, then they start talking. They feel like talking. Talking is just replacing the action itself. Thus, here the Tibetans are very clearly defining it as weakness of faith, but not combined with also weakness of intellect. If you have weakness of intellect, you don't have the capacity to find the words. It is strength of intellect allied with weakness of faith. That is why you also, in a situation where action is required, if you find yourself that you'd rather talk, realize that this denotes a weakness of faith. 
when you have the faith, you just step forward strong. This is to, for you to identify truly what faith is. Realize that Tibetan yoga does not speak about faith in God, does not speak about faith in Christian, in Christianity or in some religion. Faith is faith is faith. You have faith in yoga. You have faith in yourself. You have faith in the tradition. You have faith in various things. But if you cannot believe in yourself to start with, it's exactly like if you can't love yourself. If you can't love yourself, how are you going to ever be able to love someone else since you don't know what love is to start with? It's the same with faith. If you can't have faith, I can do it, I can succeed, I believe in the power of my mind, of my body, then I cannot succeed. Swami Vivekananda of India, he says, the, the man of action says, I shall drink the ocean and I shall move the mountains. This is the faith, he says, which is required to succeed. You should have a formidable confidence in you, in the teachings, in the method that you are using. The second alternative, strength of faith combined with weakness of intellect are apt to lead to the error of narrow-minded dogmatism or otherwise said to fanaticism. That's the definition of fanaticism given in Tibetan yoga. It is abundant faith, but stupidity, lack of intelligence. Then you believe, but you start believing stupid things. It's very easy to make, I have met in my life, and we see it very often in the New Age subculture, that there are people who believe in absolutely absurd things. They made themselves believe in some bizarre so-called ascended masters who are taking care of the stock exchange in New York. They make themselves believe in aliens that come riding on the tail of comets. They make themselves believe in all sorts of oddities, some of them which are unacceptable and ridiculous from a metaphysical standpoint. If they would have studied a little bit of basic metaphysics, they would know that their claims are preposterous to start with, and then miraculously they make themselves believe in those. This is a mystery for the people that have no faith, because faith is something which you can produce, but very, very few people know that it is exactly the same with love. Love can be acknowledged, love can be allowed to be, or on the contrary, as Khalil Gibran says, you can kill your love, you can slam the door in the face of love. That means love is eternal, love is God, but you can tune in with it, or you can stay away from it. It's not that you produce love. Love never belongs to you or I. We belong to love. But the human being can accept to be in the flow of love 
or to stay away from it. It's a deliberate action. Of course, many people do it unconsciously due to their samskaras, due to their impurities in the subconscious mind, whatever you have been in your previous lives, plus whatever your parents, school, society, education has done to you in this life, you are the sum total, the resultant of those. And then in a certain situation, you react like this, you react like that. It's not that you choose, and yet it is choosable. If in a certain situation you would have the reaction to be aggressive, yama and niyama, as well as the Jewish, Christian, Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist morality, says you could stop being violent. Everybody can impose onto themselves that when you would feel aggressiveness, to stop, to take a deep breath, and to say, no, I have chosen for five years to practice nonviolence. I want to give it a chance. I want to give it a try. Exactly as you can stop that or start it, every emotion, every state of mind can be produced or one can stay away from it. The same is with love. Very few people realize because people present love as something inevitable. They even give a feeling like they say, I fell in love. Almost like you fell off a top building or a tall building <coughs> or something. Actually, to go in love is to rise your level of consciousness, not to lower your level of consciousness, so you don't fall in love. You rise in love. Therefore, it's not an inevitable falling. It's an effort to decide to love Buddha or to love Jesus. Or It's true that spontaneously sometimes we get a momentum, a mysterious momentum. But guess what? There are people who feel they are about to fall in love with somebody. Either we talk about a person of the opposite gender, or we talk about Jesus or a guru or something, and then they prohibit themselves from, they say, no, I can't fall in love. Everything flows in that direction. But they say, I can't fall in love because I'm already married, and that would be a tragedy. They slam the door in the face of love. Somebody can say, so what if you are married? Love doesn't care if you are married or not married. Love is love. It's just a flow which comes from God and it trashes you completely. It ruins your life completely. Love is playing with us like chaff in the wind. But no, you can stop it. And if you can stop it, it means you can also start it. You can say, yes, I allow myself now to go into this flow of love. The same thing is valid with faith. You can believe or not believe. There are people who say, Swami, I can hardly believe in anything. I cannot even believe in myself. This is the equivalent of people who would say, Swami, I can hardly feel love. I don't feel any love, not for myself, not for other people, not too often, not too many times in my life, I'm not really a very loving person. I'm not really sure if I ever felt abundant love. It's the same with faith. There are people who say, I seem to be a totally skeptical nature since I was a child. I never really had much faith. 
in anything, please realize faith means not only religious faith. When you believe in Santa Claus or you believe in the Tooth Fairy, that's a faith. When you believe that antibiotica can really heal disease, that's also a faith. Some people are saying that vaccination and antibiotica, they don't really heal disease. They only cover them and suppress them, and it's a superficial impression. But there are people who swear by surgery, antibiotica, vaccination, and these kinds of things. Why? Because they believe. It's easy for them to believe. I have met people, they have done years of yoga and professed to understand the energies of the universe and to believe in the power of the body. And then when they were put in a situation like getting an infection in their gums or something, like what I'm trying to say, it's a relatively minor problem which is not going to kill you, they would immediately jump on the antibiotics boat. And then somebody says, wait, what's the second? All those years of just lip service didn't make any difference, you know, like you didn't build any faith. When you are tested, people's character is known in adversity. You know your friends when there are hard times, when there are fun times, everybody is friend and everybody is okay. When there is a time of war, when there is a time of drought and starvation and famine, when you are down, when you are, then you see who the friends are, where the friendship is. So it's the same here with the faith. Faith is tested in the hard moments. It's very easy to pretend that you have love, that you have faith when you are on the wave, on a, when you are surfing and you caught the wave. But in the moment when you are down, that's when you are tested truly. That's when it is seen. That is why, please remember, this is a very interesting, I always remembered this aphorism from Tibetan yoga because it explains this paradox that faith, you can create faith in whatever you want. In medical science, it's even called the placebo effect. For example, you have pills which are placebo and they work 40%. You just give to a person nothing, and it's 40% healed already. But guess what? If you take two placebos, and one is smaller, and one is bigger, like you simply take some big fat pills, they work twice as much as the small ones. Because it gives more faith. A big fat pill must be full of something really powerful, isn't it? If the pill is red, it works stronger than if the pill is blue. And the list could continue. There is a flabbergasting list of studies of what things in placebo do, just according to their size, color, name, and all sorts of weird things which you'd believe they don't work. Therefore, this shows automatically that the human being builds faith constantly. Many of the great spiritualists, not only yogis, who went and lived 30 years alone without seeing a human being, they started forgetting how long a human being is supposed to live, that a human being cannot levitate in mid-air, that a human being cannot dematerialize their body and rematerialize it somewhere else, 
And when you start forgetting this hypnosis, which was imposed on everybody since childhood, then those people started performing miracles. It was very difficult for them, on the other hand, to perform miracles in the presence of a large group of people. Because it's faith against faith. The faith is simply like a measure. It's simply like a unit. It's simply like a power. And that is why what is very important for you to remember from this statement, the strength of faith combined with weakness of intellect, they are, this combination is apt to lead to the error of narrow-minded dogmatism or fanaticism. People can make themselves believe in whatsoever, that this person is holy, that that person is this, that this school is so, that this food is so, that you can believe, you can build any faith you want, and many religions are based on that. But those faiths, if they are not integrated in a system, into a proper metaphysical system which is built by an enlightened being, like by a Buddha, then automatically those faiths can be absurd. You see so many sects and denominations, so many cults, they are having very strong beliefs. Again, some people would say, but Swami, some people, not only in absurd sects and cults, even in mainstream religions, and some people lose faith and don't manage to have faith. Therefore, remember that to have faith or not is exactly like to have love or not. To have love or not is a disponibility, usually considered to be a disponibility or a capability of Anahata Chakra. If you are born with an Anahata Chakra, a heart chakra which is almost down to zero, much as you try, you don't love. If you have a martial artist Manipura, you are a Japanese person with a huge Manipura but no Anahata, you get converted by a Christian preacher to Christianity and your love for Jesus is, I can commit seppuku for Jesus Christ. I can slit my belly for Jesus. That's not love. It's a devotion which comes from Manipura. It's the samurai type of devotion. I am a soldier of Christ. Like the Jesuits. The Jesuits trying to stem the Reformation, the Protestant Church, the Lutheran and other things, they became the army of the Church. The army of Jesus Christ and Ignacio of Loyola and others, they became the soldiers of Christ. But Jesus didn't ask for soldiers. Jesus asked for lovers. Yes, you can be a soldier of Christ. You can be a samurai of Jesus Christ. But then you have a relationship with God, or at least with that channel. For God, you have a relationship on Manipura, not a relationship on Anahata. You do not love Jesus. You do not manifest love. That's not love, although you are surrendering, you are devoted, you are obedient. But it doesn't come from the heart. It comes from Manipura, and it can be splendid. It can be very laudable. 
this extraordinary Manipura approach to God is what makes karma yoga. Karma yogis surrender their individual will to the will of God. In karma yoga, you have a relationship on Manipura with God. My Manipura under the Manipura of God. May God's will be done. It has nothing to do with love. It's about will. I'm interested in what is thy will. I respect thy will. Respect has nothing to do with love. Sometimes in some cultures where the values are mixed, like in some of the Western capitalistic cultures of today, people say, if you love me, you respect me. Love is in Anahata Chakra, respect is in Manipura Chakra. They don't mix. This is not the definition of love. Read Kahlil Gibran. Read Paul, the Apostle of Christ, in the letter to the Corinthians. Read other, major, like what Rumi has to say about love. The great lovers, none of them mentions respect. Love has nothing to do with respect. If you need respect, you need a relationship on Manipura. You don't need a relationship on Anahata. Anahata is about humility, says Rumi. A lover knows only humility. He simply says he can't help it. He longs to sneak in your alley and kiss every lock of your hair. He can be only humble. He can't help it. That's it. That's the nature of love. It has nothing to do with respect. Therefore, faith, to which, from which we started, is a value which starts from Ajna Chakra in yoga. It is the same with the power of suggestion, self-suggestion, hypnosis, self-hypnosis, and it is the capacity to convince yourself totally that the fire burns, that the gravitation attracts you to the earth, that you are bound to live around 80 years of age, and all that. And your subconscious mind says, your belief is my command. Your wish is my command. If you believe that you are going to eat to live around 80 years, you're going to live around 80 years. Your glands will function in that way. But most people borrow that from their grandparents, parents, history, society, television, cinema. To get out of this, you have to get out of the society. Incidentally, you hear there and there that St. Mark of Ethiopia lived 138 years, that Babaji lived for incredible durations of time. These were not people who were living in a big city. They were not watching television. They were not reading newspapers. Therefore, they did not get bombarded all day long with the idea you cannot live more than 100 years. It's highly abnormal. Then they could convince themselves 15 hours per day that it's possible to do something else, that it's possible to turn your body into rainbow and dematerialize. Thus, faith can be about everything. Fire walkers, they put you in a state of joy where you suddenly go carefree and you are supposed to look mostly upwards and you say, yeah, hello, oh, everything is so fine, let's sing. And then you walk on embers. Then you walk on fire and you don't get burned because you stop believing that the fire burns your feet. In the moment when you stop 
and become aware, in that moment you get a blister immediately and you get burned. Thus, faith is something which can be created. Faith is something which can be directed. Faith is something which can be turned on or turned off. I can choose to believe in this and I can stop believing in that. Why? Because so I wish. It is exactly like with love. But if you have a deadish anahata chakra, then even when you try to love, then you can't. Because you should have worked a couple of years on your heart chakra to waken it up, to cleanse it, to make it flow, and then you could manifest love. It's the same with faith. There are people who even when they are in an environment of religion, they cannot believe. They cannot believe. There are so many Hollywood movies about priests or I don't know whom who lost their faith. Like, I'm incapable to believe. But sometimes people are incapable to believe only certain kind of things because other kinds of things they believe very easily. I do not believe in Jesus anymore, but I believe that antibiotica are a great thing. Actually, there are experiments which show that they are not such a great thing. But it's a matter very much of belief. So, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is, in the case of belief, of course, we have the mystery of resonance. What do I believe into? What do I resonate with? There are people who say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in anything. I don't, I, this duality, God, devil, no, it's alien to me. I don't believe in it. Then somebody would notice, hey, you don't believe in the devil, but you are cursing all the time. And you say, may the devil take you, may you go to hell, may you this. And why do you feel like using such harsh words, which some people say are curse words, and they might have a magical black effect. And the person says, I don't care. I'm just saying it just like that. But actually, I don't believe in it. And then somebody very smart one says, if for you it's not important at all and it doesn't make any difference, because you, for, let's not forget, you don't believe in the devil, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in anything, it's just an expression, it's just manners of speech, then why don't you curse people to go to God? Instead of saying, may you go to hell, tell them, may you go to paradise. May God take you. It's not the same thing. It doesn't produce the same bizarre, dark satisfaction inside of you, like when you launch a pungent curse, which shows that actually it's not true. It's lip service that it doesn't make any difference. It makes a difference, because if it wouldn't make any difference, everybody would curse in very spiritual ways. You can try for one month, especially if you are a person that curses a lot, to try to curse in spiritual ways. Like to send people to paradise, to happiness, to other things. You know, you can say it on a very bad voice. You say, may you go to God, may you be happy for the rest of your life. You know, like express your anger, but say beautiful things. Then you realize immediately it's not the same thing. So the person who says, I don't believe in the devil, 
nevertheless sends people to hell with their curses, and it matters. They wouldn't send them to paradise. It won't give them the satisfaction of having kicked them in the balls somehow, somewhere. There is a satisfaction. Of course, a miserable satisfaction, but that satisfaction is there. Or that's, show, that's what shows that in matters of faith, you find easily people to believe in some things and not in some other things. Krishna in Bhagavad Gita, in the Bhagavad Gita, clarifies this. He says, if people are predominantly tamasic, that's the dominance of the tamas guna, they believe in the spirits of the dead. Like I have encountered in my life, people, they wouldn't believe in God. They wouldn't believe in gods, in deities. They wouldn't believe in some spirits, but they would believe in the spirits of the dead. They would say, the ancestors can help you. The, the previous generations are there helping you. This is, by the way, one of the characteristics of the shamanistic and animistic types of spirituality, which not coincidentally are considered the most inferior forms of spirituality. It's not a coincidence that after centuries and even millennia of metaphysical religiousness in the world, today you find the recrudescence of witchcraft, magic, Wicca, the Lord of the Rings, all sorts of other things, shamanism and so on. These, according to Krishna, these are inferior beliefs. It's simply a capacity. I cannot believe in Jesus. I cannot believe in Tripura Sundari. But I can believe that the spirit of my grandmother is there to help me. Your grandmother is an ant compared to Tripura Sundari or to Jesus. The, why can you believe in the spirits of the dead? Which spirits of the dead? They are not free. They are not enlightened. They have not reached liberation. They have their own problems and tribulations in the astral worlds where they dwell. And they are limited. They are selfish people because most probably your grandmother was not Teresa of Avila or some female saint. And yet you ask for appeal from your grandmother because it's much more easy for you to resonate with just another selfish person who existed 50 years before you, than to rise your mind to the level of something very pure, very high, very perfect. It's a resonance, what we can believe and we, what we cannot believe. There are many people, if they hear two rumors about one person, they, they easily believe the bad rumor, and they very hardly believe good rumors. Everybody knows in advertising and social work that bad rumors go much faster than good rumors. If somebody has a rumor, you know that person has healed somebody and done that. Yeah, maybe. It, it, I don't know. You know that person stole some money and it, oh yeah, well, a really bad person. Like we really believe the shit and we don't believe the good things. Look at the news. The news on television, 
present 80-90% horrible stuff and very seldom positive things like somebody who accomplished something spiritual, surpassing the human nature, surpassing some limitations, a great accomplishment in science, in art, in something, very seldom. It doesn't sell, it doesn't impress. That says something. It's a symptom of Kali Yuga, that the mind is so negative. That's why it is said often, the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker. And it also says, a thief thinks that he's always surrounded by thieves. <coughs> we always project, and it's a resonance. That's why one has to be very careful what they believe. Your faith is something which you can decide upon. <coughs> I want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and is here to save me. Why would you believe that? Because it's good for me. It's a good belief to have. It serves me. I want to believe that the aliens are coming on the Hale-Bob comet and we should cut off our testicles and commit collective suicide because our souls would be taken by the Hale-Bob comet. Why would you want to believe that? Only a masochist, a self-destructive, twisted, ugly-minded person would believe that. That's not a beautiful mind. That's a bad mind. Supervise your mind constantly because the mind is tempted very easily to believe bad things, especially in Kali Yuga, because we don't live in a good environment. We live in a polluted environment. One of the kings of England or France, I forgot, who generated the famous order of chivalry in a ball, was dancing and one of the ladies lost one of her garter belts which was holding her stockings. And the king very gallantly bent over and picked it up and tied it around her thigh. And then he said the famous words, <coughs> which became the motto of that chivalry order, which in French are Onisua Kimal Ipans, which in English means shame be on those who think badly about this. Like the fact that the king bent over and tied, it's like the king is horny on her or has a secret relationship with this woman. He said, shame be on those that have dirty thoughts about this. Because it's natural to expect that some people will start gossiping about it. That shows impurity of the mind, the inclination, the demonic, perverse, dark inclination always to believe the worst, always to see the worst. On the contrary, when you read the definition of love from Paul, you see that love is not seeking and is not remembering all those evils and darknesses. <clears throat> I am saying this because we have two problems in spirituality. People whose faith is blocked, they cannot believe in anything. And I, for one, I am curious why people would not believe in a yoga tradition when yoga is not invented by me, by you, by my teachers, or by people in the 19th century or 20th. 
yoga being a sen centuries old, thousands of years old tradition, is validated by the test of time, which is the most merciless test. There have been so many aberrant things, they disappeared. After a few centuries, nobody hears about them anymore. It's very difficult for a ridiculous, useless thing to be propagated for hundreds of years and for thousands of years because the society dumps those things. Yoga, so why would people not have faith in yoga? Why would people not have faith in themselves? Why would people have not faith in the power of the universe, in the energy, in the universal energy, in the power of their mind? Why would people not have faith in the creator of the universe, which is advertised to be almighty? Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the so-called Christian science, she devised a method which doesn't work for everybody because the problem is precisely the faith in which people could heal themselves by the faith. Her idea was, if you are created by God because she came from a Christian angle, you cannot be created by God anything else but perfect. Because if God would create you flawed, then automatically that would be the mistake of God. God cannot create anything but perfect, being perfect, almighty, omniscient, and all those. And therefore your blueprint, your essential being, your spirit is perfect. The fact that at some point you start falling ill, it's simply because you forgot your perfection. You start getting misaligned with your original blueprint. And therefore, what to do to heal? You just have to remember your perfection. That's why in Christian science, when you pray for your own healing, you simply say, God, I know that you made me perfect. Therefore, this cancer, this tuberculosis, this whatever it is, it's not from you. It can't be. The blueprint which I have from you is perfect. I believe that I'm perfect. Make me perfect again. Align me again with that. And many, many people had incredible healing from this. They demonstrated that even if 10 people gather around you, and even when you don't believe that, they believe that about you, and they like pray about you. It's not a prayer. They don't pray like, oh God, make Jack healthy. Oh God, make Jack healthy. No, they pray by saying Jack is perfect. You have made Jack perfect, and we know that he is perfect. We see that he is perfect. And we simply ask for that perfection to come forth, to shine through. We know that Jack has just forgotten his perfection. His subconscious mind gets loaded with stuff and it has lost its original purity. So we just, that's the prayer. Their prayer is a visualization, it's a remembrance, it's an actualization. And thus, you have no faith, but ten people can have faith for you, in you. Because ultimately, it's you who carries that perfection in you. That is why, remember, that this is not about faith in God. It's not about faith in a guru. It's not about faith in yoga. All those are byproducts. It's about having faith 
period. It's about having faith in yourself. It's about having faith in the good things, in the right things. The unfortunate thing is that faith can be directed in the wrong direction. You can still produce effects. You can see in many of the sects and cults of this world, people going into trances of different kinds, piercing themselves with metals, doing all sorts of things, getting their hands into boiling oil, and all sorts of other feats in which there is a hysterical mass thing. You can see people throwing their crutches and standing up and saying, Hallelujah, brothers and sisters, and so on. And then five days later, the effect is not there anymore, and there are not constructive spiritual effects from it. That is the drama of it, that Ajna Chakra, without Sahasrara, is blind. Ajna Chakra is like, I can believe in something, but please teach me in what to believe. It is only the divine consciousness which gives us the, conscious, the compass and says, this is a good thing to believe in, this is a useless thing to believe in. Yes, you can believe that there are, I don't know what, ascended masters who do something. You can believe that you have 16 chakras instead of 7. You can believe that your Manipura chakra is in the solar plexus instead of being in the belly button. But that will not lead to emancipation and spirituality. Those are like dead ends. They are like offshots of the tree of spirituality, which lead nowhere because they are not sponsored by the crown chakra. Spiritualities are forms of belief which have been warranted by enlightened beings and it's exactly like paths in the forest. There are paths in the forest which lead nowhere and you can get lost like in a labyrinth and then there are paths in the forest which are marked with paint like there is a red triangle on the trees and it says follow the red triangle and you'll get to that chalet up in the mountains. Why? Because somebody has painted those trees with red triangles, and it's a marked path. It is the same what the religious faith is. Buddha has created a faith. Theoretically, Buddha has created a faith in the little green man from Mars. But he realized that won't be useful, and it won't lead anywhere. Faith there are people who have faith in the most absurd things you can imagine, and some people even obtain paranormal effects, abnormal, exceptional paranormal effects, because they believe in something. And for them, it seems to work. But that faith is not necessarily useful. The faith is a capital, exactly as you have love, and then somebody says, if you love too much the objects, the money, the this and that, that's where you'll go. If you love God, that's where you'll go. So decide what you want to love. Do you want to love darkness, limitation, materialism? It's the same with faith. Decide in what you want to put your faith. With intelligence, you can choose a good faith. Like the Tibetans say, 
If you believe that your teacher is a Buddha, you will receive the, belief, the blessings of a Buddha. If you believe that your teacher is a Siddha with paranormal powers, you will receive the blessings of a Siddha. If you believe that your teacher is a great yogi and a scholar, you will receive some blessing which comes from a scholar and a teacher. If you believe that your teacher is a normal person, there will be almost no blessing. It doesn't matter who your teacher is. It matters what you believe. And you can choose to cultivate a good belief. Like there are people who believe that Jesus did not exist. There are people who believe that Jesus was a schizophrenic carpenter from Nazareth. There are people who believe that Jesus was a sort of a preacher, like many other firebrand preachers of today, and this Holy Spirit thing is just a thing which happens to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And there are people who believe that Jesus was God incarnated on earth, who came to give a new click to the humanity. You can choose what you want to believe, but why not believe the supreme thing? What does it cost you? Because to believe does not entail any administrative obligation afterwards. It doesn't say that if you believe that Jesus was God incarnate 2,000 years ago, then you have to go to the church and pay 10% of your income to the church. That is not a logical conclusion, and it's not written anywhere. That's a man-made convention which you can very well bypass. That is why... <coughs> Remember that this is a big problem of today because some people are incapable to have too much faith of any kind and those are the people who are pathologically skeptical. They can't believe even in themselves. Those people have to cleanse their Ajna Chakra. They have to develop their Ajna Chakra to have a flow of this energy of the mind to be able to believe First of all, in whatever. It doesn't matter in what. And then the next step is, when you have belief, on top of it you should have some intelligence so that you should choose a good belief. In my life I have seen so many people believing in things which not only I thought that they were absurd and useless, but years afterwards, they were proven to be so, because theory is like theory. But any tree shall be known by its fruits. When the fruits are bitter, you know that the tree is not the good kind. Therefore, this is a very important statement which shows, which teaches that faith is an energy that you can turn on and off, that you should have like love, and that it is an energy that you should guide in the right direction. And when you are of little intellect, then you will project your faith chaotically, believing all sorts of weird things indiscriminately. Faith must be used with discrimination and intelligence, not with lack of that. That's why the advice here is choose your faith system. Choose your belief system. I recently read, read a book of self-development of an American author. He demonstrated in beautiful ways 
that people, after they try one thing, after they cultivate wrong beliefs, after they fail one way, they fail two ways. Many people, when they are already around their midlife crisis, around their 40s, they start developing a pathetic, heroic mentality in which they think, since I fucked up everything, at least I could die heroically. I could die. And that's why many people in their lives produce all sorts of diseases and all sorts of events in which actually they themselves, with their own mind, ask for a heroic end to their lives because they failed in everything else. They didn't manage to have successful children. They didn't manage to make a lot of money. They didn't manage to make a name and fame for themselves. They didn't manage to do this. They didn't manage to do that. And the only thing which is left is to be a legendary hero. Maybe at least you can die heroically in some way. It is a very, very shrewd, it's a very, very sharp point of view of someone who understands in a neuro-linguistic way, understands precisely the power of faith and of pre-programming your mind. <clears throat> the third statement of the Tibetans concerning the errors, another error. Great zeal, like drive, without adequate, accurate instruction is apt to lead to the error of going to erroneous extremes or following misleading paths. There are people who have zeal and because they are not instructed properly what to do, they have the zeal, they have the balls, they say I'm ready to die if necessary and then they go and die. They do ridiculous things. In the time of Jesus, in the very story line of Jesus, Jesus at some point is to be weighed against a zealot. Zealots, that's exactly the name where it comes from. They had lots of zeal, but used in very wrong ways. The famous Barabbas. And Jesus, because Barabbas says, you are the guy who says that we should love the Romans. You are the guy that you say that we should forgive our enemies. It's not, I, don't, I want to fight. I want to kill every one of them. I want them out and so on. And Jesus tells him, Barabbas, your zeal blinds you. Like you want the good thing. But Jesus says, do it my way. Because you cannot have the kingdom of heaven on earth with these people. These people ask for these circumstances. To change the circumstances, you need to change the mentality of the people. It is what today in sociology and politics is called a grassroots revolution. If you do not make a grassroots revolution, if you do not change the people, you cannot change the leaders. There was all this scandal for decades in America that Big Brother, the government, is oppressing the people and all these American independence people form militias and so on to fight against the Uncle Sam and so on. But they themselves were very selfish people, very low frequency people, very rude, very primitive and uncouth people, most of them, not all of them. Those people were unable to produce a government or a social system better than what existed already. 
because what existed already was the resultant of the people that have created it. It was not artificially from above imposed on some good people. There tends to be generally the feeling that people are victims. And Big Brother, the governments, I don't know whom, the bankers, the aliens, the Greenlanders, I don't know whom, is suppressing the planet. No, people are suppressing themselves. People are voting for the people that rule them. People are voting for the rules. There is a very interesting experiment which is happening as we speak since a few years, since four years, which is happening in Iceland, which is a very small community. It's less than one million people living in that island, some three, four hundred thousand people. And confronted with this world crisis and with all these policies, aberrant policies of the banks, the Icelanders reacted in a totally different way and it's desperately hushed down by the media, so you shouldn't read about it and really hear what's happening in Iceland. But unfortunately for them, the internet is not yet stopped or stoppable, and if you Google it, you'll see immediately. Only it never comes on the front lines of the news agencies, because the Icelandic people, being just 300,000 people, they just went out in the street with pots and pans, and spoons, and they just made a huge street revolution without any bullet or bloodshed, and they completely annihilated the bank system and everything. It's incredible what has happened in Iceland. See for yourselves, and therefore, unfortunately, the society which we have is the resultant of the subconscious collective mind of the people. It's like it responds to what people want. People want inferior, 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 inferior things. Inferior, 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 inferior leaders are being born and elected to respond to that need of the society. On the contrary, if every member of the society says, I shall become less selfish, I shall become more compassionate, I shall become more caring, I shall become more detached, I wish to become more spiritual and look for something vertical in my life, then the world would change instantaneously. It's a grassroots revolution. It starts from there. <clears throat> that is why, coming back to this, great zeal without adequate instruction. There are people that have great zeal, but no instruction like lots of potential, lots of energy, but they do not have the patience, the humbleness, the discipline, the good karma, whatever thing, reason is there to find good advice. And then those people are like boiling, but boiling for nothing, boiling for wrong things. And a lot of energy is being spent in wrong directions, it is wasted in this way. Thus, remember that if you find yourself to be a laid-back person, or lazy even, then this problem does not apply to you. But if you are a person boiling with interest, boiling with zeal, and remember that your zeal must be accompanied 
by adequate instruction. Put your zeal in the service of something which is intelligent and works. Allow yourselves to be guided. When you have steam, that steam can move a steam engine, but you can also blow off the steam uselessly and foolishly with nothing, no other effect that the steam will be blown into the atmosphere. Thus, people that have zeal are like steam engines that have lots of pressure in the kettle. It has to be channeled properly in spirituality as well. Four, meditation without sufficient preparation. Through having heard and pondered the theory is apt to lead to the error of losing oneself in the darkness of unconsciousness. <clears throat> That's a very serious one. Some people say it's important just to meditate. Didn't you say, Swami, that practice is the most important? Let's practice. However, Tibetan yoga says before practice, you have to hear and ponder the theory. Many people say, why in Agama, you guys, from the very beginning, you teach so much theory? Because yoga practice without the clear theory, it means jumping in the dark. The mind is a labyrinth. If you don't know where you come from and where you go, where you are, and what is the process, what's happening with the five bodies, what's happening with the chakras, what's happening with the energy, and you just say, oh, I'm just going to practice anyway, it says it is apt to lead to the error of losing oneself in the darkness of the unconsciousness, which is a tragedy. It's like going in a coma. It's simply going in sushupti, in the third level of deep sleep without dreams. That's what the unconsciousness is, technically speaking. And then that's where you remain. It doesn't lead to enlightenment. It does not produce good karma. It does not produce spiritual merit. It's not a spiritual practice. And people will say, but I pushed. Yeah, but you pushed against the wall. It gave no result. People think that if I make efforts, that's sufficient. Tibetan yoga says you have to make efforts which are well-guided and intelligent. Just making efforts like, hey, ho, hey, ho, let's just, we work. We don't think too much. We work. If you don't think you are going to push against a rock, against a mountain, and it's never going to move, and then you are going to finish your life and say, why I push so much, I work so much, I didn't get much in this life. Try to think about people who express their zeal into aberrant beliefs and practices. Although we are not supposed to be judgmental, all of you know that on the face of this earth, there are sects and cults which are aberrant which are simply too much, which for some of you are clearly unacceptable and you wouldn't touch it with a poker. No, and therefore, people would say, but if I make an effort, I make an effort. It's not true. Some people just run in circles. Running in circles doesn't get you anywhere. Therefore, the effort, it's not enough to have zeal and to make the effort. This is a very important thing. 
Even when you do an asana in Agama, we tell you, now we are going to perform Padahastasana. And the teacher could say, come on, you've heard me say that 15 times. Let's do Padahastasana. But the teacher says, now we are going to perform Padahastasana, in which you concentrate to feel earth streams of energy rising through your legs, focusing in Muladhara Chakra, bringing of some extra energies in the area of the trunk, and expel through palms and fingers back into the ground of the toxic waste energies. Why does the teacher bother to say that? Because that's the theory before the practice. It is having heard and pondered the theory. Always, first of all, there is a definition of the goal. You don't just start hunting without knowing what you are going to hunt. Because that depends the kind of ammo and things which you take with you. It's you are goal-oriented. You are going to do something. You have to know exactly what you are going to do. I'm going to use a mantra, and this mantra is going to purify my etheric body and my astral body, and later even my mental body. And this mantra is going to activate my Agnya Chakra and my Sahasrara. And now it's, the technique is performed this way, this way, this way. And now it's time to sit down and do it. This is how you perform. I have seen so many times people doing yoga, like, let's just do yoga. Oh, yeah, well, you guys in Agama are more sophisticated. You say all these things, that the shoulder stand sublimes the energy from the pelvic area, from the low chakras, and it brings it at least at the level of Vishuddha chakra. Hey, what's the use of that? Let's just do the shoulder stand. You do the shoulder stand, you can lose yourself in the darkness of unconsciousness. You don't get the results. You first of all need to know what you are doing, what results to expect, because let's not forget what was said before. A lot depends on the faith, on what you put into it. Thus, yoga and spiritual practice needs to be done with a clear understanding, not to waste endless weeks and years in just doing theory only, but at the same time to do spiritual practice, especially serious spiritual practice, without defining, first of all, expound, expounding, exposing, setting forth, and pondering upon the theory, can lead to a catastrophe. Many people think that spirituality is easy, but there are so many conditions to spirituality, and one of them is surprisingly this one. Finally, the fifth of the ten errors. Without practical and adequate understanding of the yogic theory, again, one is apt to fall into the error of religious self-conceit. Like some people become conceited religiously, like, oh, I can do this, and I, God is with me, and I have this, and I have that. But the yoga theory is a rational theory which explains what is happening to the chakras, what is happening to the energy, what is happening to the mind, what is happening to the different levels of the being. And therefore, practicing this down-to-earth vision of yoga it is very difficult to become self-conceited in a religious way. 
you can become self-conceited even as a sportsman. Like, oh, I'm pumping iron. Look what beautiful muscles I have. Isn't my body really a bodybuilder's body and so on? That you can. But at least you won't get the religious self-conceit. Religious self-conceit is ascribing some things to a miraculous level. Yoga is making people stay away from this miraculous thing. Like there is mystery, there is magic, there are many, many things to be known, but at least you are not going to ascribe it to a religious miraculous thing. You are going to know it exactly by the theory of yoga. Somebody bends a spoon. Bending spoons and all the forms of telekinetic influence, as they are called in parapsychology, they come from Manipura chakra. You have a strong Manipura chakra, especially in its low sub-levels, you bend spoons and other metal objects. <coughs> you may produce cracks in the furniture, poltergeist, noises. There is a whole range of parapsychological phenomena which can result from people having Manipura chakra a certain kind of arousing. I remember one of my early yoga teachers told me that he met a little boy that had a strong Manipura arousing and he could make himself win in the old slot machines, in the jackpot machines. He could always, his, he was so sure that he could empty the machine that his mom was coming with a bucket after him and he was not fiddling with the machine. He just had an incredible confidence and he said, now I'm getting the jackpot, 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 just wait. Just five times and, <coughs> and every time he was getting it because his Manipura chakra had the telekinetic capability to influence the mechanisms. Just like Uri Geller is famed that he stopped the Big Ben in London by putting his telekinetic power on <coughs> that old machinery, on that old watch. So then... There is no religious self-conceit. You are not going to say, I win the jackpot because God is with me. You are going to say, I win the jackpot because I am having a very peculiar Manipura and I can produce parapsychological effects. And that's a completely different angle. It's a completely different way of living your life and understanding things. Six. Unless the mind be trained to selflessness and infinite compassion, one is apt to fall into the error of seeking liberation for self alone. That's a very subtle and spiritually a very great idea because spiritual emancipation is in the beginning always an individual business. It's like nobody can force anybody to do spirituality. If any one of you has any spiritual idea, congratulations, I'm happy for you. You have aspiration and it's beautiful. But ultimately, it's like when you do meditation, when you do spirituality, you do it for your own emancipation. Everybody around me is spiritually indifferent. However, I have chosen to pay attention to that. I have chosen to take care of my soul. I want to evolve spiritually. People around me seem not to pay attention at all to that. They just let go. They go on the path of minimal resistance. I am one who wants to stand up and wants to say, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to do what comes. I want to do what's right.
I want to produce the circumstances to go in the right direction. Thus, this attitude is in the beginning generating a form of selfishness, like everyone for oneself. You don't want to take care of the spiritual evolution, I want to take care of my spiritual evolution. Well, I'm a person who is concerned, I'm a person who cares. I can't help you stop smoking, I can stop smoking for myself. Thus, people develop a strong individualism. The first step of spiritual practice is that you move from Svadhisthana, you stop being a sheep, you stop Facebooking all the time and being bah, 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 what will the other people say, and you start being yourself. And I say, I don't give a damn on what the other people think or do, I am going to reach my nirvana. Then, the spiritualist found out that as the energy moves towards the heart chakra, there appears this Christ-like feeling that I am one with everyone, and then my spirituality is organically related with the planet. We are living like in a beehive. It's a colony. What one cell does reflects on the other cells. It's like in the beginning, in the embryo, the cells are undifferentiated. All of you started from one big cell, the ovum, the egg of your mother, which got fertilized by the semen of your father. Short time afterwards, that cell became two. Those two became four, eight, sixteen. And it went on this rate for quite a while. And then there came a moment, weeks after, when the cells starting differentiating. And some of those cells became the brain and the spine. Some of those cells became the skin. Some of those cells became the liver. Some of those cells became the bone system. Like there is a differentiation. It's the same in the human world. In this world, we have people who are brain, and we are people who are anus. It's just the way it is. In a body, you need cells that are lining the anus, and without them, the brain wouldn't be happy. The brain would suffer if the anus would be in a poor condition. Therefore, in this world, we have from alpha to omega, and there is everybody that fulfills a duty on this planet. There are utopian people who claim that we should all be rich. I don't think it has ever happened in the history of the earth. And with all due respect, I don't think it will ever happen. Imagine a small community. Imagine that the whole earth goes down and there is only this island left with 2,000 people on it. That's the whole world. If all these 2,000 people would be stone rich, who will clean the toilets, the public toilets? Who will do the garbage picking? I'm having five or 55 or 555 billion dollars in the bank. You're not going to get me to gather the garbage. I'm too rich for that. Who is going to? Because everybody is very rich. Therefore, we all know that in every society there have been kings and beggars. In every society there are people who are rich and people who have to gather the garbage to get, to, to get their daily bread. That's the way it is. There are lions and gazelles. Without the gazelles, the lions cannot exist. 
That's the way the food chains and everything is made. Thus, please realize, in this planet, in this collective consciousness, you can choose to breed the most exquisite cell. There are a few exquisite cells produced by the planet Earth once every few years. Those would be probably the equivalent of neurons, nerve cells, the top cell produced by the body. Those would be the Buddhas. Those would be Paramahamsa Yogananda and Saint Teresa of Avila. Some people say, no, Swami, maybe those are severely sick people. Maybe. It is just for the sake of putting it, it's up to you to evaluate if spirituality is a pathology or if spirituality is really something superior. But the point is that there are people who choose to go into the higher things and there are two people who lie down, who simply go give in to the entropy and they go down. And that's why it is indeed in the beginning that people say, I want to uplift myself. I want to save my soul. I want to save myself. I want eternal life. Jesus promises kingdom of heaven. Yes, I want that one. I want to go to the kingdom of heaven. I want moksha, mukti, nirvana, whatever it's called. And then at some point you realize if one such person is born on earth, there will be marvelous effects for millions and billions of others which follow. Therefore, when you get spiritual, you don't get spiritual only for yourself. It's not possible because the energy which you generate, the thoughts that you think, a lot of other things which come through you, they are of an exquisite quality. That's why nobody really gets enlightened for themselves. That would be the manifestation of an incomplete enlightenment. The Buddhists have generated this, have developed this into the famous vow of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva mentality or the Bodhisattvic vow which says I shall not seek enlightenment only for myself. This is a very difficult subject. For many people it's hard to understand because many people automatically presume that if you get enlightenment, it's automatically going to be compassionate. But it's not. Not all enlightened beings have a great Anahata Chakra. Not all enlightened beings have a benign Manipura chakra, just to put it in a terminology which is more Asian, like a Manipura type of Zen master that is very generous and benign. That's a utopia, because if people, when they get enlightened, they would develop a fantastic mind, then why would it stop to the mind? The human being is spirit, mind, but then it's also the astral body, emotions. It's also the etheric body, the energy, the life force. <clears throat> and last but not least, because that's what we see all day long, it's the physical body. So if we have a light shining here and the person gets <clears throat> supernova, boom, enlightenment, then that enlightenment should go in the mind and the mind of the person should become a beautiful mind. It should go in the astral body 
reverberate and it should become perfect emotions. It should go in the etheric body and it should become a perfect energy and it should even shine in the physical body and the person should be beautiful with raven black hair, with spectacular eyes, with no disease, with small elegant feet or I don't know what else defines concept of beauty. What I'm trying to say, you all know that that doesn't happen. There are people who reach very high states of realization. They can have dirty feet and smell. They can have a liver disease. They can have energy problems. There are so many examples of enlightened beings that got angry or were having some strange emotions. And even in the terms of the mind, which is the closest to the causal body, even in the mind, which should be the first one to receive the impact of the transformation, sometimes we can see that enlightened beings and spiritual beings are very different, even at the level of the mind. Thus, this is a false belief, which we explain more thoroughly in the metaphysical workshop in this school, when we do it, approximately once a year, in which we explain that a spiritual realization doesn't always touch, modify, or influence the layers of materiality. People are materialistic. They always expect, if I'm getting enlightened, will I get perfectly healthy? No. Ramakrishna died of cancer. Ramana Maharishi died of cancer. Jiddu Krishnamurti died of cancer. And so many others died younger than the normal age. Yogananda at 57. Aurobindo at 53, and the list could continue. Like we're talking about real big yogis here. Therefore, enlightenment doesn't make you healthy. Enlightenment, therefore, doesn't perfect your etheric body. Enlightenment doesn't even perfect your astral body. Therefore, automatically, this shows that one should not have wrong expectations and that simply says people think if you got enlightened or if somebody got a very spiritual breakthrough a union mystica a state of experience a sp uh, intense spiritual experience then that person is definitely a very kind person compassionate loving wrong there have been enlightened beings that had no compassion and people say oh bad that's bad you, most people do not have the level to judge or condemn an enlightened being. Enlightened beings are free. And being free, it means you are not even obliged to be nice, loving, compassionate. If all the enlightened beings would be compassionate, that would mean that they are not free. Because it's actually not total freedom. Yes, you get enlightened, but you become a good guy. You become a nice person. No. There is not the obligation to be nice. The ones who have been enlightened and nice, they became very famous, very loved, great teachers, acknowledged. And the other ones, people say, yeah, he or she may be enlightened, they are total assholes. What can you do with such an enlightened person? Such an enlightened person, you can flush them down the toilet and the world won't feel the difference. It's like, what do we care that they are enlightened? They are enlightened, but they are enlightened for themselves. They are just on a trip of their own. There they have been many enlightened beings who have been these strange mavericks. 
Allah, Gurdjieff, and so many others, they have just been on a trip of themselves. Gurdjieff smoked his cigars, drank his vodka, ate beefsteaks, and drove his car, and did all these wild things, selling Arabian carpets, and I don't know what. And in the end of the life, after he confused everybody up and down, when he was dying in his bed, he looked ironically at the people in the room, and he said in French, Je vous laisse en debout hop, which is a double entendre, which means I leave you in bed, in nice bed sheets, like an irony, like what do I care that I, you know, you put very beautiful bed sheets on my deathbed. I'm dying anyway, like what is the importance of having good bed sheets, silk bed sheets when I die, you know, it's like you are focused on all the material ridiculous things, which usually you are. So it was a fun of that, but it also in French, it means I leave you in a big mess. It's a slang expression which would say, I leave you in a big mess, like I'm dying, and who can continue the work of Gurdjieff? Who can be Gurdjieff number two? When Ramakrishna died, then Vivekananda became Ramakrishna number two. When Gurdjieff died, who became Gurdjieff number two? Nobody, because he was a lousy teacher. He left them in a mess. He didn't create an orderly system. He did not take care to groom somebody or several people to that. He all the time liked to be interesting. He was Monsieur Gurdjieff. The price which he paid for it was to be a prima donna. He was a spiritual prima donna, and as enlightened as he might have been, pedagogically, he didn't serve an interest. I'm not saying that he should have. I'm simply saying that a spiritual person is not obliged to be nice or a good teacher or caring, or even compassionate. That's why especially the Buddhists, especially the Mahayana Buddhists, they have added this, because they have said too many people are reaching to that, and it's like the body, the planetary body, makes so much effort to create a brain cell, and then that brain cell is a fiasco. So let's create brain cells which will take care of the body. Let's create brain cells that will have compassion because that's more beneficial for the whole, for the system. And that's why in many spiritualities and religions there is this unwritten law that spiritual people are supposed to be beneficial, compassionate, loving. It's like a one last obligation. And some people say, I don't want to have that obligation. That's why the Theosophical Society, quoting from the Buddhist literature in the early 20th century, they even wrote, Miss Helena Blavatsky, in one of her aphorisms in the Voice of the Silence, there's a little collection of spiritual aphorisms called the Voice of Silence. One of those aphorisms is a typically Buddhist one, which says the supreme sacrifice is to renounce nirvana. This is nothing else but the bodhisattva vow put in westernized language in an aphoristic form. Because the bodhisattva vow says, when I shall reach to the threshold of nirvana, I shall taste it a little bit to make sure that it's the real thing, and then I'm not going to indulge in it forever. I'm going to stay right on the threshold, so that I can still be in contact with the world, so I can transmit knowledge and guidance to other people who want to come to the threshold. 
and that means the enlightened being becomes a spiritual guide, pledges that this enlightenment will not have been gained only for me, but I will pass it on to other people. Even then, in India, some sadhus in Vedanta, they were just desperately trying to pass the enlightenment to one disciple so that they can duft out of there, they can puff out of there as quick as possible. The guru of Ramakrishna, Totapuri, was elated that Ramakrishna reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He didn't even bother to verify what's happening next. He just dumped him and somebody else helped Ramakrishna during that period of time. And then after a few months, he decided to walk in the Ganges and drown himself because that was a custom often used in India. Very few people know. Many Vedantic sadhus, if they reached high states of samadhi, suddenly they realized this world is an illusion. It's a dream. I am the immortal spirit. There is no time, there is no space. So what am I going to do another 20 years on this planet? Convert oxygen into carbon dioxide? Eat the food or try to eat some food? No, fight for my survival like any animal on this planet? I'm beyond this. My existential condition is way beyond this. I'm not an animal. I'm not only the physical body. I'm way beyond this. And then they would simply either sit in meditation until their body would die. Some giants would not eat for a hundred days and just die. Some sadhus around the Ganges, they would just walk in the Ganges and they didn't know how to swim. So they would just drown. And many people say that's suicide, right? Therefore, this is what I say. In spirituality, they, this was considered to be a sort of conceited, selfish enlightenment in which maybe you cannot be judged for it, like nobody can throw tomatoes at one of those and say, why did he do that? Do what he did and then you'll find out why he did that. He or she has reached to a level of consciousness which is superhuman and which does not... <coughs> is not convenient anymore for existence in this world. However, you have to, you have the bodhisattva vow, as well as the rules of compassion and loving kindness say, use your, if you have reached enlightenment, do like Buddha. Stay another 30 years, 40 years, and use your time to support the others. Be a good nerve cell. If you have gained the status to become a privileged cell in this organism, which is our planet, be a beneficial, compassionate superior. Yes, you will have to take a lot of flack for it. Buddha was, they tried to murder him several times. Jesus was crucified. Rumi was mocked and persecuted. Ramakrishna was considered crazy. Milarepa was poisoned by some jerk. Spiritual people are not being treated very well in this world, and there is a lot of mistrust and a lot of other stuff directed at them. And yet the spiritualists have said, if you will blossom into spirituality, don't blossom just for yourself. Benefit others from it, because you yourself are the result of an effort 
which you don't understand. Everybody says, lucky me that I got a good DNA. There are people who got diabetic. There are people who got autistic. There are people who got polio. There are people that have hydrocephalia. There are people who this. I'm a lucky one who is smart and well endowed and all that. The planet is a system. Remember, we are living in a system. And that's why spirituality is not only an individual story. In the beginning, we always think that it's individual because we have to summon up our Manipura and we have to summon up our individuality. Everybody in my city, everybody in my school class, everybody in my family is a spiritually indifferent person. And therefore, I have to break up from them. You are all stupid, you are all blind, you are all weak. I want to be vertical and I want to reach that. So in the beginning, you need a lot of personality to be able to do practice. Everybody is going to watch a movie and then they go to the pub and they get drunk. I'm sitting in my house and reading a spiritual book and then doing two hours of meditation. Of course I need willpower for this. I need something to separate myself from the crowd. Every spiritualist knows that you need to have aspiration and sometimes there is a choice. There are choices that you have to make when you want to do a beautiful spiritual practice. And therefore, the tendency is, you know what? You went to the pub, that's what you get. I did meditation, that's what I get. It's like each one for themselves. There is the tendency to be selfish. That tendency has to be transcended at least at the level of the heart chakra, understanding that if a tree produces a flower, the flower looks around and he says, how ugly the rest of the tree is. I'm a flower. I'm the most exquisite product of the tree. Even the bees are seeking my nectar and my perfume. And just near me, there is bark, ugly bark on the branch of a tree. And there are a few leaves. And there are, but if the whole tree wouldn't have strained itself, the flower wouldn't have appeared. The flower is a product of the tree. Therefore, it is a very strange thing in this world that some people reach enlightenment, but at the same time there are other cells in the organism which are living in much more lousier condition. Try to realize, in your body, some brain, some cells are in the brain and they take decisions which change your life, and there are cells in your body which are almost constantly bathed in feces because they are by your anus in the rectum, in the rectal ampoule, and their mission is to be bathed in feces all day long. But without them, the brain would not be sustainable. Thus, people should never forget if I am a spiritual person, if I am free, and if I become enlightened, I have to have compassion for the anuses of this planet as well. I need to have compassion for the miserable ones. I need to have compassion for those that live in darkness. Because somehow the fuel that has made me blossom comes from the miserable levels of existence. And they unknowingly and organically sustain me. That's why it is logical, it is 
the compassionate thing, it is the spiritual thing to overflow. That's why Jesus says, you gave me food, you gave me to drink, you visited me in prison, you healed me. And he says, you are going to say, when, Lord, did we do that? Like everybody says, I would like to give some food to Jesus. Right? That would be great merit. If I give some food to Jesus when he's hungry, he will put his hand on my head and bless me, and then I'm fixed. Right? Then I'm done. But, and we would like to, but, and so say, says Jesus, you're going to say, when? We wish, but when did we do that? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you that whoever has done this to the most wretched of my brothers has done it to me. Like Jesus says, I am the whole system. I am enlightened and you see me like the flower, but I am still the tree with the roots and the bark and everything. I'm part of everything. Everything has worked to make me be the flower which I am. That is why the correct attitude is that we cannot separate ourselves from the reality in which we live. We are part of this reality. And it is a sure thing that some people in this room, sooner or later, are in the long run, all of you, but in a shorter run, some people in this room are going to reach a full condition of enlightenment. You are part of a system, a part of an organism, of a planetary organism, which has invested in you, hoping that you will return that investment by becoming compassionate brain cells, not selfish brain cells, that turn their back onto the system and say, I've got my thing, I've sorted out my issue, okay, you guys take care of yourselves, bye-bye, I'm out of here. This is the Bodhisattva vow in which the Bodhisattva say, I shall not go away and enjoy my full nirvana before all the sentient beings in the universe have reached the same, which basically means never because there are new souls being created all the time. The souls are like a river, which runs in a circle, as Buddha has defined it. Therefore, when you say, I shall not leave this universe before all the souls are being enlightened, it means never ever. I shall be forever a compassionate brain cell. I shall be forever a spiritual guide once I manage to find a way to the top of the mountain. This is the beautiful part of it, which the Tibetan yogis could not have failed to mention, because Tibet is tributary so much to the Mahayana Buddhism and the Bodhisattva vow, and therefore it says, unless the mind be trained to selflessness and infinite compassion, one is apt to fall into the error of seeking liberation for self alone. Therefore, the mind must be trained in selflessness and infinite compassion before you reach, not after. That, that is why in most forms of spirituality there is a lot of basic stuff about love. Like Jesus says, which is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is love God, the God thy Lord, with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he says, but there is a second commandment which is not lesser than this one. And that one is love thy neighbor as yourself. This is the Bodhisattva vow. 
expressed in the language of Jesus. Like, I am with everyone, therefore, I need to cultivate a spirituality which is beneficial. Remember, spirituality in itself, it's not beneficial. There can be a spiritual person that can be greedy up to a certain extent, that can be selfish up to a certain extent, that can play games, that can be a maverick, that cannot have compassion. But most spiritual teachers, the elders in Christianity, the spiritual guides in Sufism, the old monks in the Buddhist monasteries, the gurus in Indian ashrams, and others and others, they have always tried to build in their disciples a solid foundation of morality, ethics, which will make the human being created in such a way be a human being that is compassionate, loving, beneficial, and which showers this gift upon the others who are less fortunate in our system. It is very important to think organically because we are not alone in this process. It's true that we have a consciousness in which I am with the universe, I am with the Buddha nature, I am with God, but at the same time, I cannot ignore the fact that I live in a world where I am part of a system. Even my body is produced of molecules and atoms which have been borrowed from the dust of this planet, from the water that I drink, from the sunshine that I receive. Therefore, I have borrowed something from this physical universe to exist, to be like this. How do I pay my debt back for being allowed to be this? This is the systemic, compassionate thinking which is involved here, and this alludes, therefore, to the Bodhisattva vow and to this enlightenment is for yourself and it is for the rest of the universe as well. It is late enough. Let us stop for tonight. Let us spend a couple of minutes in silence and introspection because calming down in the last moment is like we access deeper levels of consciousness and thus the things which you heard tonight and which you are going to think about, they are going to get fixed into the deeper levels of consciousness and be there for you. Thus, let us meditate for a short while before we conclude our meeting tonight. And that will do. With this, we have finished our meeting for tonight. Namaste to all of you and see you in the next satsangs. Or we'll continue with the seventh of the causes of regret as outlined by the Tibetan yogis.